Network. Hi, this is Stephen Turek from the Freebooters Network. Today we bring you another episode of Ego, the 80s geek out. We hope you enjoy the show. Episode 7 of Ego, the 80s Geek Out Podcast. My name is Ian Clark, and I'm joined, as always, by the cue to my money penny, Mr. A. Bradford Anderson. Brad, how are you this morning? I'm well, sir. How are you? I'm I'm well. I'm well. Uh, just to warn you, so, so we're going to talk about uh, the 1987 James Bond movie, The Living Daylights. And we're going to talk about some other stuff before then, but just to kind of give uh, give a little bit of a preview of what's to come, uh, the subtitle of this episode is Brad Defends Himself to Ian for Why He Wasted Two Hours and Ten Minutes of His Life. <laughs> oh, my God. Uh, no, this is going to be interesting because you obviously have uh, an affinity and an affection for this movie, and so it'll be interesting for me to see what angles, you know, or if it's a nostalgia thing, if if there are certain things that I didn't see, or just uh, just however, uh, just whatever it is that makes you like this movie. So, but that's part of what this podcast is. We're gonna do we're gonna do a ton of iconic '80s things, and we're all gonna also gonna do stuff that's personal to to us as well. So, um. You know, so that's why it'll be interesting. But uh, before we delve into that, I do like to talk about kind of what's going on in our lives and everything. And and right now, uh, as we record this in late March of 2020, uh, real life is kind of fucking real right now. Um, We are in the middle of the COVID-19 pandemic and uh, Brad lives in California, which is on pretty much on lockdown. So we're, we're just in a, we're in a really crazy time right now. So what's, uh, what's it like for you out there on the West coast, Brad? It's, it's kind of fantastic. You know, I always knew something like this was going to happen. Didn't really suspect it was going to actually happen to this magnitude in my lifetime. You know, we, there's enough, you know, you know, all the doctors and we know, cause if you're a rational person, you don't use movies as reference points, but you know, <laughs> right. you know, contagion, epidemic, pandemic, uh, hot zone, uh, all these films, are very relevant now, and you know the way they've portrayed things in the in in Hollywood is kind of what we're hearing, you know, at least on the patient side and the numbers side of people, you know, uh, who are being infected with this virus. Um, you know, here in San Diego, from what I can tell, at least in my little corner of the world in Pacific Beach, people are not taking it too seriously, which is a problem. I mean, evidenced on Friday when I went out, I had to run to the post office. There was I was maybe one of eight people I saw in a three uh, three mile walk that I did to the post office yesterday because it was warm, and I get it Southern California. Um, there were hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people on the boardwalks, on the beaches. I mean it's it wasn't quite the level of what you, we saw in Florida earlier this week when you know all the spring breakers were going you know crazy. Um, but, you know, people, I think, really need to start waking up, you know, and it's not just young people that, that are out and about. It's pe- my I'm in my 40s, you're in your 40s. It's peoples of all gamut. And I get people want to get outside and get some fresh air. But the social distancing thing, the six feet uh, thing was not prevalent anywhere. The only where I got that was at the post office where they have it marked off, demarcated, six feet spaces. 
Trader Joe's, uh, thank God, is rationing food right now, and they have a pretty good selection, which which is nice because I know they've been cleaned out, you know, the last the last week or so. But they actually had us spaced as well, you know, six feet between people, only allowing about eight to ten people in the store at a time. It worked really well, you know, the way they're doing it. They have stock items. They've got, um, you know, good organization uh, of getting people in and out of there in a fairly timely fashion. But it's it's bizarre. I think from my perspective, I'm nervous about what I don't know. You know, it's like I'm you know around people I know in my complex. But then those people now are, are hanging out with their regular friends. So the, the social distancing thing is not what it should be. Um, and that's a concern because as we've seen, uh, the transfer of this, of this virus goes extremely fast without even knowing it. And you could be a carrier uh, who gets symptoms. You could be a carrier who doesn't get symptoms. And by that time, you've already infected a number of people just being in proximate locations. So it's, it's scary times. And you know, I've, I've, you know, don't normally cry about things in life that often, but I sat down on you know Saturday morning and just yesterday and just broke down a little bit because this is so incredible and so fantastic in the worst possible way that the fact that it's actually happening and we're having to you know alter our lives to save our lives, which is just incredible because humans by nature we're socially interactive creatures. And we don't want to be cooped up. We don't want to live in the cave anymore. We want to be out expressing ourselves and, and meeting people and talking. And I think that in this immediate day and age is a dangerous thing to do. Yeah, and I, I the thing that, that bothers me so much is what you touched on there is people not taking it seriously enough. Because, it, I, and whether it's them thinking, oh, I'm not going to get it, or them thinking, oh, if I get it, it's not a big deal. But the... the right bigger picture is are you carrying it and infecting someone who's at a high risk are you going to be indirectly responsible for indirectly responsible for perhaps somebody dying because of this and that that i think is what bothers me the most is that there are whether or not you have any fears about your own health you could be impacting somebody else and and not even know it and so that's that i think that's what i find so bothersome about people not taking it seriously and i'm you know i'm still working i know you're working from home um i work in a pretty small office anyway even though i work for the state of new hampshire my my particular office is not very big it's one little part of the department of transportation um we have about 30 people in there. They are starting to put things in place for people to work at home. Uh, I probably will not just because it'll be difficult for me to do my job at home because I have to deal with um, letters coming in from the public and, and things like that. So, right. <clears throat> and believe me, I did a ton of homework on whether or not this was transmittable through the mail, mm. um, which looks like evidence shows it is not. So, right. um uh, but I'm still obviously washing my hands frequently and sanitizing everything. I don't, but my point is, I don't think I'm going to be able to accurately work at home. But the good thing is, if enough people in my office choose to, like, I, I think probably within a week's time, there'll be less than 10 people in my office. So, right. so, so that, you know, and then I won't feel so bad about that because that's a nice low number and, right. Everybody's hopefully being diligent, and you know I will say the state's been very. New Hampshire's not in a lockdown, but um, you know there's been a ban on a lot of things, and um, so <clears throat> we seem to be taking it 
seriously here, but at the same time, you still see, you know, right. there's still tons of people out and about. So, yeah, it's uh, it's crazy times, and I, I hope that enough people can take it seriously and, and take the proper measures so that we can knock this down and that we're not doing this a year from right. now. Right, because that that's my concern is that, you know, everything I've read that, you know, this is like a first wave of this, and, you know, if we learn from this right now, we can learn how to... St- you know, cut this off at the pass the next time this happens, and hopefully uh, people will listen. But I think the reality hasn't quite set in. Like you said, the effects that we have on our actions on someone who might have an, a pre-existing condition and, and what have you and pass it on to them, that's where it really matters. And I think, you know, more people, you know, I don't want to say people need to experience a loss to realize the magnitude of what their actions are, but, you know, it's coming to that people are you know uh, infecting others and people are passing away it seems fairly quickly it's not like a lot of these you know people are having you know quick recoveries it seems like some people gets it on a monday and by sun- the following sunday they're they've they, they're already passed away so that's terrifying as well there's really no rule set to how this virus is acting and that's what scares me um and makes you a little paranoid uh to you know be careful of services, like surfaces you're touching. Like when I was at the post office, I'm like leaning on my elbows on my jacket because I'm afraid to put my hands down. You know, I'm trying to not use cash. I know, you know, like we said, that's not transferable necessarily through um, the, the mailing system. But, you know, I've just been less apt to receive cash back on anything. I'd rather use the card um, and just have as minimal contact as possible with anyone besides myself. And that's it's it's amazing and rough how much we touch our faces, our bodies, yeah. touch surfaces, touch you know everything from street crossing you know buttons to uh, our doorknobs, handles on uh, on office doors and in buildings. It's it's wild the things that we do on a daily basis that we don't necessarily think about or account for um, as we are functioning in, in society. But it's remarkable of when you think about your personal actions and how many things that you come into contact with directly and indirectly that you even realize it's, it's wild. So it's keeping that mental checklist of, you know, what the, what to do's and what not to do's and being, you know, diligent about following those, you know, and, you know, using your, your shirt uh, uh, or jacket as a thing to push buttons and turn knobs. It's, it's wild. And then, you know, getting back and dousing yourself with Purell to make sure you, if you did come in co- into contact, that it hasn't had a chance to seep into your system. So, yeah, this is an insane situation that we're having to contend with. And it's it's literally, we're living a, a real-life horror movie um, without the monsters. And it's just, it's beyond comprehension. Yeah, for sure. It's, um, it's crazy. And, you know, obviously a big part of the podcast is to give people something to do for an hour or so and, and get their minds off things. So we're, you know, don't want to start the show on a down note, but it is obviously what's going on. And, and Brad and I are into, you know, different parts of the country and, and experiencing different things. Brad's in a much more large urban metropolitan area and I'm more rural. So, you know, we, we're just kind of giving a little bit of our perspective on what's going on, but we'll, um, you know, we just uh, do want to provide some sort of entertainment, maybe a little bit of break from things. So we'll, we'll get off the, uh, the, the real world stuff, but we hope everybody's, um, everybody's being safe and being smart.
Okay, so Brad wanted to, we were going to do another movie, and um, spoilers, we've kind of hinted at it. We'll, we'll definitely be doing a major movie in May. We'll, we'll figure something else out to do for, uh, for April. But um, I was like, yeah, pick a, Brad, pick a movie. And um, James Bond was where he wanted to go, and uh, the movie he chose was The Living Daylights. I am not, and I've been honest about this. I, I think I even mentioned it on this show. I've, I've talked about it definitely on Nerd Herders. For whatever reason, I'm not a Bond guy. I would probably enjoy a lot of the movies and everything. It's just there there are certain things, for whatever reason, that don't click with me on a level where I'm like, oh, man, I've got to see that thing. Other things like um, Harry Potter. I've not read any of the books or seen any of the movies. I'm sure I would enjoy it. For whatever reason, I just I have not checked it out. Um I'm not a car guy, so I don't give a shit about like Fast and the Furious one through twenty or however many they're on. Um, Planet of the Apes, never a big Planet of the Apes guy. Um, you know, there's there's a ton of stuff like that where I'm just like, eh. And Bond's always been like that uh, for me for whatever reason. I know I saw some as a kid. I guarantee I saw like Moonraker and and ones like that because right. you know when when we were growing up and you'd rent you know, rent a VCR or you had the VCR and you rent movies. I mean, you would, there were not as many movies uh, back then as there are today. So I guarantee right. at some point we rented some Bond stuff. And, and my stepdad that I lived with and grew up with, he, he liked the Bond movies. So I guarantee I saw him, but I didn't remember anything. I definitely did not remember The Living Daylights uh, from 1987, which was Timothy Dalton's first turn as James Bond. Um so for me, this was a new experience to so watch it. I watched it last night. It was funny. I was like, I was like, oh, am I going to have to rent this on Amazon or whatever? It was on one of the free streaming ones on my Roku TV. It was on like Vudu or, or Pluto awesome. or one of those. So I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> um, so, so let's go to your backstory with this movie. What did, did you see it in the theaters? What, Cause let's see 87, depending when it came out, we would have been like 13, 14 years old. Right. Um, did you see it in the theaters? What? How did this come to be one that you liked so much? Let's put this into uh, absolute Brad perspective to win your heart and the <laughs> minds of all our listeners. All right, so um, I did a little more in-depth research. You know, I, this is probably of all my Bond films. This is probably be my my favorite Bond film. Um, I belong to several groups on Facebook, uh, which is a great areas and platforms to discuss breakdowns of all the films the stuff we like the stuff we don't like the stuff we would love to have seen the stuff that may never happen so this actually came out um i think it was end of june 87 um and strangely enough um the only i i remember i'd seen a couple commercials on tv leading up to it this was actually right around the passing of my grandma at the time so we ended up going to florida as a family uh did the wake uh funeral and I think I may have mentioned this on a previous episode, but um, The Lost Boys actually came out this exact same day. Oh, okay. And I was had been seeing both of those Vine commercials on TV, and I was like, oh, I really want to see The Lost Boys. So we ended up, you know, the, the younger parts of our family uh, during the funeral c- ceremony got kicked out of the house to get away from what was going on. So we had a couple choices on movies. And I was, you know, looking at law, on law, um, at the newspaper at the time and saying, oh, The Living Daylights is playing. Ooh, but The Lost Boys is playing. Ended up going with The Lost Boys. But um, the this was actually my first film being seen in a movie theater. You know, really? Every, for, for, well, film as in James Bond film. Oh, okay. I was going to say, what? 
E.T. was my first film. Okay. All right. Yeah, uh, uh, which I think that was what early 80s. Um, but, you know, I had to make the decision and we ended up going to the Lost Boys. But this, um, after we returned from Florida, uh, this was one film that I had actually gone to see uh, in the movie theater um, with a couple of buddies from from uh, Skowhegan. And so it has it carries that weight as being the first Bond film seen in the theater. Uh, and it's all epic primeness. AHA had been huge throughout the early 80s. They did the lead song, The Living Daylights, for this, working with John Barry on the soundtrack. So those little bits and pieces were fusing together. Obviously, this film comes right after A View to a Kill from 85, which had uh, Roger Moore starring in the role of James Bond, but also had Duran Duran in the title soundtrack. So it was the the 80s music that I was in, uh, really firmly entrenched with was actually starting to appear uh, in big billing films and doing soundtracks. So it, those things t- tied together brought me to where, cause I like you was the exact same way when my folks used to rent uh, VCR and VHS tapes, I would be getting the American Ninja series, American <laughs> Ninja, um, you know, uh, James Bond, uh, Bruce Lee films. So all those were initially coming through VHS tapes. So this was my first real outing in the theater, seeing Bond, on the big screen and and i from it has a lot of different value meanings to me but just to be in the theater seeing it and this is now from 87 till present day i i always make a point of catching james bond the release of a film within the first couple of weeks of opening so yeah and were had you read any of the ian fleming books my dad actually had, he had gold, he had a couple, he, as a kid, as a kid, when he was younger, he had, I think it sounded like the majority of the books. I had only read okay. Goldfinger, and I think, I think it was Goldfinger. I know we had a couple in the household, but then later on uh, into the mid-ish 80s when a lot of other writers like Craig Gardner were actually doing um, their own Bond films within the, the kind of uh, canon of it, um, I read some. Uh, that were non-Ian Fleming books, but were kind of extensions of kind of basic storylines that could have been touched on in uh, in his books. But the only one I actually read was was Goldfinger, and that was they're all pretty cool because the books are excellent in their own right, but the movies thankfully do take them in d- different directions, as we all know of adventure that is not necessarily touched on or covered in the book, but you get a much more fuller picture seeing it on the big screen than you sometimes do because Bond films it. They, they do a lot better job, in my opinion, translating it and adding in things because, you know, that's what the viewer wants. They want action. They want adventure. They want a suave and sophisticated super spy, you know, globetrotting and doing everything is, you know, saving the world, uh, you know, one day at a time. Yeah, uh, it, it's interesting because um, this, this movie, again, I, I didn't see it um, when it came out. But was definitely aware, and I, you know, I knew that they had switched um, to Timothy Dalton. This was his debut, and everything. Uh, but I, I was curious, and and did a little bit of research after I watched the movie. I wanted to do a little bit more of a deep dive and see where is this one regarded. Like, you know, taking a look at the rankings um, and and things like that. This one, and again, I haven't seen anything. I haven't seen any of the new ones, any of the old ones. I couldn't tell you which ones which. Um, that I have seen. I know I saw some Roger Moore when I was a kid, um, but uh, I was curious, where does this one fall? Most of because I think there's at this point 24 Bond films, yes. something like that. Yep. This one, I was like, 
okay, is this one considered one of the worst ones? I mean, where, where does this fall? It falls on all the lists that I saw. It falls very firmly right in the center. And it seems to me that a lot of that, at least from what I read in these little blurbs and whatnot, a lot of that has to do with the fact that they, people felt like Dalton's bond was perhaps the closest to Fleming's portrayal in the book, and right. that Roger Moore, who had taken things literally to outer space in Moonraker, right. this kind of grounded Bond and, and brought things back to the real world a little. So it kind of earns merit for that, which I understand within the pantheon of the Bond films. But, you know, for me, seeing it on its own and being familiar with the, the mythos of Bond and the other characters, you know, Money Penny and Q and all that. Um, so it was interesting for me to come in from that perspective and, and look at things so um yeah it was definitely uh I, I i think the the biggest complaint i have about the movie is and i didn't hate it i didn't hate it i should put that out there it it felt longer than it needed to be uh it's two hours and 10 minutes i think it easily could have come in under two hours um but i will say it's very well shot there is some there is some yeah. there's some really good cinematography and obviously with bond you're you're talking about globe trotting type of adventure and so some of the locales and everything uh really lend themselves to it but um and it's got kind of that cold open where it opens with stuff going on before you get the title sequence which i think all bond movies do if i'm if i'm not mistaken i will i will say the opening shot with the um the skydiving shot from the air Right. As the as the three double uh, O agents are, are dropping and shot from above. That's a fantastic fucking shot like it. That's a really, really like vivid, like crisp. And you see the land below them coming up. And it's right. that's Yeah, that's a gorgeous shot. I mean, it, and if you look in the context of other Bond films, uh, there have been other one of the other things. And we'll touch on this as we talk about it more that this film, you know, has a lot of core Bond elements, skydiving. There's been a lot of skydiving in other films uh, with Bond getting to his initial location or throughout the film. Um, Geographic destinations, as you just mentioned, um, one of the other big things that I liked about this was the globe-trottedness. And I think, and and I did my research, and I couldn't find any other Bond films that had, you know, as we all know, Films are said they're in one location, but they're actually shot in another. So this one, um, I counted, and I'll just go down them briefly. We've got the opening scene, the Rock of Gibraltar in Spain, them flying down landing. Um, there's They're in Bratislava, the Czech, Czechoslovakia still at the time, because this is 87, communism is still standing. To Austria, to London, England, to Tangier, back to Bratislava, to Austria, to Tangier, to Afghanistan, to Pakistan, and back to Vienna. 11 locations that Bond and the characters bounce through. I don't think there's another Bond film out there today that has hit so many different unique geographic destinations um, in one in one film. And, and that is another thing that appealed to me, uh, was the depth and scope of the, how far and wide they went to, con- to take the story. And, and, and as you well saw, you know, each area location did play an integral part. I do agree with you. You know, the the uh, two hours and eleven minutes was a bit long of a haul. There are some things certainly that we could have axed. You know, um, from the storyline, at least what we saw visually, to make it to bring it in at least around the two hour mark would have been a sensible uh, 
wrapping job to do it up, up nicely. Yeah, and uh, the, the globetrotting element, too, I kept getting vibes of Raiders of the Lost Ark. Absolutely. And, not, and that's not just because John Reese davies is in this, who's obviously in Raiders of the Lost Ark, but just a, a bit of the globetrotting, a bit of the, you know, that um, uh, desert locale yep. that we see and horses and all that type of stuff. And there's even a few almost... I don't want to say nods or callbacks or even ripoffs, but there are definitely a couple of things that seemed to maybe have been pulled from Raiders or Temple of the, uh, or the Temple of Doom. But um, yeah, the globetrotting aspect I really liked because again, it's a it's a beautifully filmed movie. Like the the right. locations help a lot, um, and uh, so so yeah, there is there is a lot to like within that. And there there's other things I'll mention. On my, I got my notes here as we get through it, but. Um, um, so so yeah, we open up with the cold open, and it's it's three double O agents. We don't know who is who because they're all masked up, and they've got their skydiving gear on. They drop down. Um, they're doing some sort of training exercise. We find out quickly they're being shot at with um, essentially not paintballs, but like a almost like a pellet um, that expels like a little cloud of paint or um, dye or whatever when they when they get hit. And uh, you can tell who the first guy out is going to be. It's the it's the dipshit that gets caught in the trees with his parachute. <laughs> Always the guy who gets caught. I think at every war movie, that guy's the one who gets shot first by the Germans uh, from the from the guys parachuting out of military planes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so you get um, and again, I realize me and maybe this is the way with all the Bond films. This cold open really has little to do with the rest of the movie. It's just right. like here's here's James Bond doing James Bond things. Um, so you end up in a car chase, uh, which leads to one of the most 80s tropes ever as a car drives through like a like a fruit stand or a food stand of some sort i saw that i was like i was like oh we're (laughs) we're definitely into uh into the 80s um (laughs) but then you get a a freaking crazy stunt the parachute out of the back of the truck Um, right that's and, and then and then the like his his parachutes on fire and it's like that's all that looks like all real practical stuff that was done right the um the the yeah it i mean those were some very impressive stunts i did think and and you probably saw this as well that i was surprised uh how many stunts that uh timothy dalton did in this film he was very big on not having stunt doubles do a lot of it for authenticity's sake and i think uh i read uh the the director john glenn um, was also impressed with his physical prowess because he was, I think, in his mid forties when he did this film, and you know that which is you know on the slightly tail end of the Bond scale. I know they would try to get people in their early forties, but I think uh, him doing a lot of his own stunts adds to the authenticity of the action in the film, which there's definitely no shortage of. Yeah, yeah. So I, I definitely right off the bat, I was like, all right, they're they're doing some cool stuff here. Um, that resolves, and we get the the Bond opening where we get the 007 and the theme song and everything. And it's funny, I didn't place that it was Aha at first, mm. but uh, in the credits it says it, and I was like, oh, okay, yeah, I can yeah. definitely hear that. Now. <laughs> but it's so funny. The if if you came to me and you said, hey, Ian, I want you to do an opening, uh, James Bond. Okay, do do the James Bond opening and make it as eighties as you possibly can, and uh, that's pretty much what would have happened. Is is exactly what's in the movie. <laughs> <laughs> well, and you have to look at that the 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 car chase scene. Obviously, he's lunged on top of this military jeep going down the side of a Gibraltar cliff, and it, he's hitting the switchback. Shades back. of Raiders of the Lost Ark. 
Ex- yes. And you have to look at it from the perspective, you know, that was a tight single road railway, um, which definitely had probably cutoff points for cars to pass. But, you know, the speed at which they were going down there, eh, kind of plausible on a one lane road. But, um, yeah. you know, with two guys fighting in the front seat with a knife and a gun and paintballs all over the windshield, they, they traveled quite far before he ended up having to exit with a parachute on that. So that was something. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Again, that was a super, that was a super cool stunt. Um, all right. So we get the opening and then we get kind of the, um, the first look at uh, what's the, uh, again, this is where my bond knowledge is lacking. Is there a name for like the place where bond goes to get his gadgets? Like what's that called? Like the, the, well, the, the name of the company that they go under is universal exports. Um, which in all the films varies. Uh, usually the inside set when Bond is meeting with, um, you know, uh, M or Q, where, you know, obviously Money Penny's office is right outside. That's some office deep within the Universal Exports, which is the umbrella organization that okay. uh, they use to hide themselves as, you know, the OO program. Gotcha. Okay. So, so we get our first peek in there, and then there's about the most 80s weapon that that you could see they're showing off and that's the uh the the big boom box that's, that's a missile launcher as he as he says he goes uh, we're working on this for the americans it's called the ghetto blaster and it's like, <laughs> yeah yep, I was like, that's pretty appropriate for uh the 80s <laughs> yeah i was like oh man <laughs> that tied that right into as uh, being that, that that you know carbon dated that as a well that's an 80s film <laughs> absolutely um so that was kind of funny. Uh, and then we get our first look at the uh, the Russian defector, um, whose name, I have everybody's names here, I forget what it is, but maybe you remember. Uh, Koskov. Jordan Koskov. Koskov, yes. Yes, so played by an actor named Jerowen Crab or Krabbe, I don't know, it's got an accent on the, I don't know how he says it, but so this guy... I immediately I recognize the name because um, names, especially unusual names, stick in my head from movies yes. and stuff. So do you know two films, one major and one not major, uh, two roles that I know this guy from? Yes. Okay. And and obviously I think it's and these are probably two of his biggest roles. Uh, well, I know one of the two aside from the Living Daylights, um, um, the Fugitive with Harrison Ford, the remake. Yes. Yeah, um, and that he was phenomenal and almost as diabolical in that film as he is in the Living Daylights. The other one I probably know, but it's not sitting on the top of my tongue right now. What's the other one? So, the dude's probably been in a ton of movies, but the other one that I know him from is he's the bad guy in the really bad Dolph Lundgren Punisher movie. Oh, you're right. Yes, yes. Which I love because it's bad. I actually love that movie because it, yeah, that's so bad. yeah, agreed. <laughs> but um, so so I knew him. Um, and then you get like this weird, almost, um, looks, you know, tall Scandinavian assassin dude. It reminded me a lot of, um, from Die Hard, uh, yes. Alexander Gudinov, yes. um, you know, just kind of that tall, very, uh, you know, light skinned, yeah. light skinned, athletic, super blonde. Yep. Very yeah. Aryan looking. Yes, for sure. <laughs> so we get this guy who has, uh, what I called, uh, milk Tov cocktails, <laughs> bottles of exploding milk, which was yeah. which was interesting. Um, but uh, so I don't know. It's kind of cool. And again, it's probably very Bond esque. Uh, probably follows the formula. But you get kind of this introduction to this guy that you know is gonna 
play a part in things and be a little bit of a thorn in Bond's side. So so he has kind of a cool introduction where he um he comes in and kills some people. Um and then you get get another car chase and you get the insanity of a a laser beam coming out from the Aston Martin and essentially cutting the bottom off of a cop car. Yes. <laughs> so much so that you get a really cool stunt where the top half slides off this little piece at the bottom. But yes, uh, it was that was kind of crazy. I mean, because this it's funny because this film compared to some previous ones wasn't overly heavy on the gadgets. And um, we had the laser thing on the car. We had the ski rails that come down on the car, <laughs> which I thought was neat. Yeah, um, you know, compared to previous Bond films where they have, and more recent ones that will be forthcoming, you know, machine guns in the headlights, you know, gas coming out from the car, oil slicks, rockets, um, and I think Die Another Day had rockets. So, the, on the scaled down portion of uh, you know gadgetry, which Bond kind of was known for, this wasn't exactly marking a shift in the focus on the gadgetry because you know gadgets do play uh, a role in every bond film but it seems in more recent times the gadgets are more weapons related as opposed to little things to get you out of tight binds so i mean one of the bigger gadgets in this film was a keychain that you had various whistling techniques one was to activate uh the plastic explosive which was packed in there and then the other one was to you know um access and open up yeah, a nerve agent gas that gets released when you whistle certain uh, certain bars of a of a of a song. So, in addition to the key that opens, uh, and I'll quote, ninety percent of the world's locks. So, there was, <laughs> right. there, there, it wasn't as goofy as some of the previous ones, but I do agree with you. The if a laser was going to cut the bottom of a car off, it would have taken the wheels out. It would have yeah, just that, perfectly yeah, carved out the bottom of the. <laughs> Uh, of the car so it slides forward so no i definitely agree with you on that um it was still a cool effect it was like like the stunt itself looked cool yeah (laughs) i was like okay all right we're setting a tone early here (laughs) and then you get another you get another kind of interesting thing where uh the aston martin one of the tires is blown out ends up on the ice again being pursued and essentially uses the rim of the, right. of the yeah. wheel to carve the ice and he essentially bond does a, a donut in the middle right. of the ice there and cuts uh a little swath of the ice out so that one of the police cars can can start to sink on it. So, no no did you see at that part when they did a camera pen back to the ice that was cut based on the rim and its ability to cut into the ice would probably be maybe no more than three or four inches deep. <laughs> right. That thing was about almost a foot's worth of ice. <laughs> and they actually show the ice tilting. And yes. it's like a really, a, a, you could put a ruler up against that like that. And I, you know, I've always noticed that and known it, but I've ignored it. But for the sake of this <laughs> podcast, I was like, that was not realistic. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that was, but, but again, a fun, like I, yeah. I think, this one, I wouldn't go so far as to say this one has a ton of humor, but it it, it has things here and there. But it, you could tell the f- they're trying to inject some fun, the, like the fun factor into it. And I think that's one of those I, things where you're like, oh, does it make any sense? Obviously not, but you got to park your brain at the door anyway for most of this stuff. So. Yeah. Well, and, and I and, thought that one was done for the sake of fun. Well, and to your point there, that you know that was one of the elements as you mentioned earlier about hit the the bond being portrayed in this film being closer to what was in in the novels. 
But, you know, Dalton also brings his own kind of suave, sophisticated, debonair aspect of it. I mean, he's more of a gritty Bond than Connery, Lazenby, and more prior to him, who all had their, you know, kind of little double entendres and funny quotes. There was a few of them in this film, but not to the level where, you uh, you know, a lot of people are very devout in their camps of who they support as being the best Bond, you know, be it Moore or Connery or Daniel Craig. But in this in this film, you know, I, I think Dalton really brings out a kind of a darker character. And so I think that the subtleties of the humor that do pop up from time to time, in addition to the way he portrays Bond as kind of this no-nonsense super spy that just, you know, isn't about the jokes and the getting by in the skin on the by the skin of his teeth basically i mean he's actually put into some very you know bad situations that he has to literally fight his way out of as opposed to just talking his way out of which you know happened in a lot of previous bond films he seems and and i'm sure this was a conscious decision he seems a bit more he's trying to underplay it it's more subdued he's he's trying to kind of not he he doesn't seem particularly interested in uh, putting his own stamp on things, unless it's by doing it in a, in a more subdued way and just kind right. of, you know, working within the story and not trying to um, elevate the persona or anything to to a different level. He's trying to, and that's that maybe sounds like I'm being critical. I'm not. I actually thought he was quite good in this. I I think, but I think it's it's like I said. I think he's he's trying to do more with less he's he's yeah you know so um so yeah i actually i I thought he did a good job um then we get a cool another escape this time on a cello case uh down down a mountainside which i thought was um and again that also ties into a integral aspect of bond films skiing you know we had him in um the spy who loved me the opening scene is him you know skiing away from russian agents is that a roger moore one that's a Roger Moore that, one. That's one I guarantee I saw as a kid because I vividly remember that opening skiing scene. Yep. So he had that skiing scene uh, uh, trying to escape the KGB. He was escaping the KGB in a view to a kill on skis. Um, and there, I think Pr- Pierce Brosnan did a – there was a ski one of Brosnan. Obviously, George Lazenby and On Her Majesty's Secret Service was one of the most iconic – Blah, green screen chase scenes uh, in a Bond film, in the Bond film canon. Um, and then, you know, this one's no exception. So they, they they do a really good job, you know, in the production of keeping elements from time to time popping back up. And this one definitely captured Bond in snow and obviously running down a mountain path uh, in a cello or Stradivarius case. And then using the Stradivarius as the, uh, as the, uh, what do you call it? The, like um, a rudder, a rudder, like a yeah. rudder to get them down, and then the thing getting shot once. So it's yeah, it they they did well with that as they passed from um, uh, Czech the Czech Czechoslovakia into Austria, in him basically telling Kara hold the passports up as as the Russians are shooting at them. <laughs> they go under the the border guard gate and they say uh, we have nothing to declare, and then they keep Which, going down the hill. Admit. <laughs> yeah, I'll admit that that line got a chuckle out of me. That was yeah. I thought that was kind of I thought that was kind of <laughs> a fun little bit. Um, yeah, you mentioned Kara there. We didn't we haven't really talked about our our Bond girl for this particular um, outing, and I I feel like they went subdued with her as well because they don't she doesn't what's her her name is not 
you know, one of those sexual yeah. double entendres that you have in most of the, um, you know, she's uh, Kara Malovi um, is her name in it, uh, played by Miriam Diabo. Uh, so not not your typical Bond girl. She's, um, we don't really, they don't over-sexualize her either. Um, not she, at all. She's not, yeah, she's not, there's no nude scene. She's not, um wearing anything revealing really at any time that, that I can think of. And, and so that was also, you got to wonder if that was a conscious decision as well to set a different tone with, um, with Timothy Dalton taking over and um, Miriam Diabo, very lovely. So obviously, you know, still going with a, a you know, a, a very beautiful woman to be the love interest. But, but right. I was struck by the fact that they, they seem to make a, an effort to not, um, not have her be the stereotypical bond girl. And, you know, to your point on that, it, which is interesting because the throughout the entire film, I mean, she plays, you know, it, there she pops up obviously in the beginning as the uh, would-be assassin to Georgi Koskov. And as we later learn, that was a complete fake. Um, it was fake to convey one thing, uh, one storyline that was supposed to happen versus another. But, yeah, she's a very down-to-earth woman you know Karamalovi, you know she plays the lady rose the stradivarius in the conservatoire wherever she is playing there in, in the czech republic or czechoslovakia rather and you find out and you probably saw this and i noticed this more so um, you know analyzing the film she plays she's a very naive woman throughout the entire film she just is not in other bond films you see the women that he goes up against or he allies with as being very scientific um, very highly intelligent. She, not to downplay her intelligence, because she clearly is, you know, serving a capacity playing a, a Stradivarius, but, you know, her in relation to the, the immediate characters around her, like, she was completely duped by uh, by Koskov, which was, I thought, intriguing. Um, I also noticed her more so now watching it, you know, after having not seen this for a couple of years, that I felt that she was very needy throughout the film. She was a little bit, you know, she portrayed the role of the naive woman, not quite know what's going on, but also being very needy, always asking, did you hear from Yorgi? Has he, has he reached out to you? Um, and then her kind of shifting as Bond was kind of her protectionary point to get her through, you know, at least half the movie before, you know, we realize what's really going on, but yeah, she, yeah, she, she, sorry to cut you off there. She, she definitely makes a turn, though, because at the end, it's, you know, Bond is, he's pretty much, he's stuck in the back of a truck with, you know, with the bad guys and yeah. the people that he's been working with are ready to just be like, well, that's, sorry. And and she grabs the gun and is like, no, yeah. I'm going to be the cavalry. And so, so it is interesting that you note that. Yeah, she, she definitely does kind of turn the corner at some point to becoming more uh, proactive and, yeah. you know, tra- taking things into her own hands, which is, which is kind of interesting, too. And again, you know some 80s stereotypical stuff with damsel in distress but at the same time she she does turn the corner um at the end and and, uh you know becomes a strong character in her own right which is kind of interesting absolutely yeah and and then shortly after we're introduced to another character um this is general whitaker an american arms dealer played by the uh the always amazing joe don baker um (laughs) he's one of those guys that you just he's been in a thousand things and and you know, I, he, um, yeah, it's always, it's always fun to see him. Um, and then also we get, our, I think shortly after we get our first look at John Reese Davies, um, yep. in, in the movie for the first time as well. So who's obviously, I mentioned Raiders of the Lost Ark where he plays Sala. Uh, he's obviously Gimli in the Lord of the Rings movies. So, um, 
I, it's one thing in this movie that I had to ask. Oh, and one one more thing I want to mention about Miriam Diabo um, as the as the lead uh, love interest and, and Bond girl. Um, I thought she was quite good in this. Um, I don't know what she had been in uh, prior to it, uh, but but I th- I thought she was I thought she was really good. Um, but uh, anyway, so what I was going to say, we're introduced to Whitaker, we're introduced to John Reese Davies. We got um, we got we already mentioned Jerome Crab. I don't know what accent any of these people are trying to do, but it certainly doesn't seem like Russian. Not at all, and that's that's a really good <laughs> point. That it there because John Rhys Davies in all his films pretty much talks the same. Yes. Um, and Jeroen Krabbe there, I think he's Belgian. I think so. There, there's not much of a Russian accent coming through. Um, you hear Necros, the assassin, the blonde, yes. tall, lean assassin. You know, he he puts on a British accent at one point. He talks as an American at one point when he's, you know, at the, at the scene there when they're, you know, kidnapping and, and re, uh, repatriating Koskov, who we believe to be going back by, you know, getting tr- you know caught again by the Russians. Yeah, there, uh, there wasn't much of Russian accents per se on the Russian accent side of this enclave which I, I that's really funny you mentioned that because i i felt the same thing there the characters were not really you know working harder on the accent side of it other than the people who speak in their natural tones like you know q like q m right. money penny bond um all those you know basically were were business as usual but all the villainies and the allies didn't quite meet the language grade that we would expect in as we've seen in more recent movies they actually kind of emulate more what their ethnicity is versus in this case they were not the least bit russian yeah and and miriam diabo she it's hers is weird because it, it drifts in and out she she like attempts it and then <laughs> kind of backs off and then it's a very it's a and again it's one of those things where it's like you know just you gotta kind of suspend disbelief and not not worry too much about it but it did it did strike me every once in a while yes. I'd be like now what is she doing she's she's not doing any accent at all now <laughs> Like, all right, so they forgot to remind her. I don't know what happened, but it that that was just a funny thing to me. It was like <laughs> none of these people are really. I don't know where any of these people are supposed to be from. <laughs> um, we also get uh, something that struck me as unusual. We get Bond uh, uh, busting into a room, and there's a there's a like a half dressed woman there, and um, he, this was this so this movie was rated PG. This was apparently back in the time where you could show show a little bit of boobies and uh, and still get a PG rating. <laughs> there you go. To me. <laughs> I was like I was like wait I thought this was PG. I did. It's like one breast from the side, but I, it was still you know for you know <laughs> for the time I was very surprised. I was like this is still PG. I was like all right. I <laughs> I forget what the what the maybe it was like one breast that was like because I think in a PG thirteen movie now the the rule is you can have, you can say fuck once. So maybe yes. like, maybe back then PG you could see like one boob that was, <laughs> that was but, but I was I was like I was like huh all right that's I don't remember that but, interesting um, yeah and then we see the they escape with like a one of those jetliner uh trucks that has the stairs on the back and yeah. they pull up to a fence and then they jump from uh from the fence now this gag is in arrested development and yes. if, which is a super funny uh gag in in that show and if if our listeners have never seen arrested development you just absolutely have to because it's a brilliant 
brilliant show. But uh, they they do a very similar gag in that when uh, when right. Michael's visiting his dad at the prison, and there's a quick shot of the prisoners running up and jumping over the fence, jumping on the over the fence, exactly. <laughs> and I was like, oh my word, that's so funny. That's clearly where that came from. That's um. Uh, and then my notes say very Raiders of the Lost Ark vibe because we've kind of moved to the desert locale and yeah. horses and everything. So yeah. um, in Afghanistan, as they say in the film. <laughs> yes. So um, uh, and then so you know, my notes are kind of all over the place because sometimes I'd take notes or sometimes I'd watch for a while. But um, you go um, to just a crazy, a crazy stunt. The the two planes. Okay, just barely miss each other, right? And then, and then the, you got the jeep explosion, um, yes. and then, like, out of the back of the plane, uh, is this net with a cargo net with all this stuff in it, and I don't know how they did this, but it looks like they are in the air. I actually, I think um, I've read in some locations. I don't think this was a fake stunt i think this was an actual stunt that they did and and looking at it you know so that so the cargo netting which is you know to keep the uh the payload or whatever's in the back of the this jumbo jet you know in place uh, they they were flailing on that up and down up yeah. and down i think the the two stunt actors because when the scene when when bond finally lets uh necros go by you know cutting his bootlaces so he falls into space for one second or two seconds during his free fall, as you hear him screaming and holding on to the boot, which I thought was kind of funny. He's holding yeah. on to the boot as he's falling to earth uh, out of this jumbo transport plane. Um, you can almost kind of see the square outline of the parachute that's hiding behind, under his oh, jacket, which okay. you wouldn't have noticed as a kid. But, sure. you know, obviously now as we're kind of analyzing things in more detail, you know, that was a great scene. But they, I believe... That was shot live um, of them flopping up and down on that, you know, that that kind of uh, meshed webbing. Um, and I was just like, that is realistic. I mean, that, that was a good fight scene. It was legitimate. It was not over the top. That was the, um, I think, first or second Bond meeting of Necros. I think, or that may have been the first one. because oh, they came up, back? Oh. Uh, no. I, well, I'm trying to think where in the film... He meets Necros. That was, the, I think, the first time they actually met face to face in the oh, fighting. Okay, you're seeing in the. Yeah. In the, in the so I'm just trying to think okay. if he, you know, where he was strangled before. But no, it was. I think that was the scene where, you know, obviously he ends up meeting his demise by essentially, you know, fighting him off the airplane as the as the web netting is bouncing up and down. But um, that was not too unrealistic of a fight scene, which I thought was good. I thought a lot of the fight scenes in this film were. Well, they're not as aggressive as the Daniel Craig era where your people getting necessarily thrown down stairwells and, you know, getting, you know, punched the, the living Jesus out of them. But it was more than what we used to get from uh, Connery and Bond about the kind yeah. of yeah, light, light, the light contact yeah. fighting versus where the, the you know, the, 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 the martial arts scenes in this that, you know, some of the other characters were using uh, fighting uh, this organization were pretty legitimate in small spaces. And in this case, there was, they were, you know, half a mile above the earth going crazy. Right. Well, <laughs> yeah, and it's funny you mentioned that because, yeah, the small spaces, I was actually kind of struck by the, um, no pun intended, the the fight scene in the kitchen early on when yes. we first see Necros. 
it felt I don't want to say realistic, but it felt a little more raw because they were just kind of using the environment, grabbing a pan or whatever, and, and right. just trying to smack each other. It, it felt a little more like what might really happen if a couple of people are fighting for their lives. Um, That's and that I thought the same thing. Yep. Yeah, and and Necros again to go back to him uh, and just the '80s-ness of this movie. The first time we see him, he strangles a couple of people with uh, the headphones from his Walkman. <laughs> right, his Sony Walkman that's playing the Pretenders. And every, it's funny because every time he assassinates, you know, from the beginning when he takes out um, the Milkman, he takes out yeah. uh, the guy uh, who he does the martial arts scene with in the kitchen. You know. Um, Where's everybody gone by the pretenders that is blaring out of. And then I think when he ends up assassinating uh, in Vienna, the um, I'm not sure if it's 008 or 006 um, through uh, using the the closing electronic doors coming out of that. Oh, cafe, right. Yeah. You hear that song playing. So that's, you know, a great track a tr a tr uh, associated with some very nefarious um assassin uh moves person that i would say <laughs> yeah um and i just want to go back to the the big stunt the fight scene in the in the back of the the plane the cargo plane with the so it, it like i guess it wouldn't have been that crazy to do because you just obviously the the cargo net is secured to the to the plane and then the stunt actors are secured as well i'm sure they right. had safety lines but just the the weight of the the little packages uh that are in the cargo net mm -hmm. and then the men themselves they're clearly being you know pushed like like it looks like they're in a plane at a high rate of speed because the net right. is not just sagging down it's right you know it's trailing out behind the plane um it's flapping around i mean so i was i was really impressed with that stunt because it looked it, it looked like it was happening which which i thought was really um really impressive and then you mentioned how how bond kind of uh gets out of it is that his 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 foot is being held onto and and bond pulls out a knife and and cuts his own laces and so he uh the, his adversary you know the boot slips off and he and he falls to his death and and then you get like the one kind of a 80s tagline a little bit of a groaner when bond comes back into the to the front cockpit where uh kara is and he says oh uh he got the boot yes. <laughs> right so there, there were definitely some bondisms in the film which was good they they were subtly delivered because i think you know dalton definitely has a more dry sense of delivery for his lines but they're very underpinned with humor so <laughs> yeah so um yeah, so that that was kind of a. I was like, oh, that's a very very '80s thing to kind of give him almost like a Schwarzenegger like uh, uh, one liner there. But um, so, but but at that but at that point or right prior to the the uh, airplane scene, we are and that's another thing, another airplane fight scene which is very common in Bond films. We've got the skydiving, we've got the skiing, and then we've got the the classic in air fights basically, which is so they they were definitely you know, managing to work in core Bond film elements that have, you know, come in many films prior to The Living Daylights. But what I also like, too, right before the, the, the plane scene, we kind of get more of a sense, you know, Bond is definitely, you know, not only is he uh, a super spy, but he's also a sleuth. And he's putting the, the pieces together of the stories that he's learning from the characters involved. So, you know, and we learn early on 
when he is told to, you know, go uh, to assassinate Leonid Pushkin, who's at this point we learn not so happy with uh, Koskov and, you know, he's kind of going a little bit rogue with some of his decision-making powers, but we learn very quickly um, in fine bond form, there are diamonds involved, uh, (laughs) heroin, raw opium is involved uh, and arms deals, which were super prevalent. So they're mega 80s themes to begin with. Um, Maybe not necessarily diamond trade, but the drugs and the arms deals were very prevalent. You know, the Iran-Contra scandal. So all these things were kind of tying in to global events, in addition to the fact this was released two years before communism fell. So I wouldn't say it's a straightforward out, um, out propaganda film, but, you know, it was definitely had the tones of the East versus West versus a rogue organization between those two factions kind of trying to manip- manipulate, you know, tensions, which is very prevalent, again, in Bond films, you know, um, looking past uh, what Smirsch would do, what Spectre would do versus the East and West, either through extortion or threats to re- release, you know, um, you know, global destruction. So the, the themes definitely came together right in the middle of the film as to kind of what was happening, what Bond was supposed to do, what he now has to do, and the direction does change course literally with every location that they're in about what the mission is going to entail. Right, right. And that that was, I think, maybe one of the things that wasn't as strong for me was the overall plot. I felt I felt like the overall plot was kind of kind of convoluted and and you know I, things it that I think were yeah. yes and and things that maybe were supposed to be plot twists or whatever weren't really plot twists to me so much as like eh, we're just gonna explain it by doing this. <laughs> so it definitely um, happened, yeah. Yeah, so I, I didn't think the plot was as strong as it could be, but um, overall, definitely, definitely some likable aspects to it. I thought, um, like I said, I, I liked Dalton's performance as Bond. I thought, I thought he was good. The, you know, the, some of the stunts were I thought were in, incredibly good. Um, beautiful locations that they filmed on. Um, so, uh, you know, um, it just a, a lot of a lot of things to like about it. So, yeah, overall, I didn't hate it. it you know, and and. This may make me want to go back and watch some of the other. Um, how many how many films uh, as Bond did Dalton do? Was it was did he do two or Only three? Only two. He Only he two. was he was he was booked to do three. So there's a little I, I did a little research on this, which is strange. Um, he was initially approached in uh, 1968. Oh wow! For, for which is just prior to On Her Majesty's Secret Service, which is my second favorite Bond film, which is not really revered in the bond community it's a bond film but that was obviously a break between connery and moore when lazenby the australian stepped in to take the role so dalton was a first approached uh in 68 um and i think he was around 24 25 at the time and and dalton felt he was too young for the role he Mm didn't plus he didn't want to come in the footsteps of connery 1980 was the second approach um uh to get him to come aboard but he obviously uh, for various reasons, it was in his 40s at that time, didn't feel it was the right fit. And then obviously in 86, um, when he finally got the the call to uh, do Bond and he signed him for a three picture deal, you know, did did, uh, you know, The Living Daylights, which was the debut, then License to Kill, which followed. And then speculation was that he was going to be the third. His first film, last film was going to be Goldeneye. But oh. due to some scheduling conflicts and whatnot, I think he declined the third role, which was ultimately given to Pierce Brosnan. Um, 
in 94. But I think at large, you know, I think from stuff that I've read that Dalton kind of re- regrets not being in that film. And I, and I look at it that, you know, the character of the actor oftentimes brings in a different, a different feel to every film. And I think that's why people are such loyalists to the Connery's camp, the Craig camp, you know, you know, Dalton wasn't around long enough. I don't think to, you know, have too much negative said about him. I would have liked to have seen a third film because that it's always good. You know, Lazenby, I would have loved to have seen him. There was speculation Lazenby was going to, you know, do Diamonds Are Forever, and that could have changed the way the scope. It was a weak storyline in general. Most people look at, you know, Diamonds Are Forever as not being, you know, it had some good elements to it, but at large it was just not a great story. Goldeneye, good storyline, kind of, again, keeping the tensions up uh, with the Russians, you know, um, even after the wall has fallen, you know, with a rogue a rogue group within uh, the Russian army and, and loyalists. But I think it would have been nice to see him one more role. And I kind of in, in envisioned what we saw Brosnan do in those films could have, you know, Dalton done that. And I think Dalton, I read somewhere he wished he had done it, but I think at that point he felt he was too old for the role. So it's funny how the Bond role definitely in some of the actors' minds, you know, uh, does affect their decision-making powers. Because clearly, if you look at A View to a Kill, um, poor Roger Moore, you know, he was in his, you know, golden years at that point, wasn't moving as freely (laughs) as he was in the earlier films. Action sequences weren't as grandiose as you would expect from a Bond film. And, you know, in his one-liners, you know, know, carried him. but, uh, but But his age was definitely showing, and I think that's why they brought in Dalton to carry the franchise forward, um, albeit for only two films. Gotcha. Yeah, it's interesting because I know I know there's such a loyal fan base for the Bond films and, and you mentioned it a little bit there with like people having their favorites and not just favorite films, but favorite Bonds and, and, and all that type of stuff. So it is uh, you know, we got a lot of got a lot of downtime here during the uh, the quarantine and whatnot. So maybe I'll dive a little deeper into yeah. uh, into I mean, some and, of the Bond and, stuff. But, but do you remember? I'm, I'm trying to remember if it was USA or TNT um, back during the holidays. Would do like the 21. I know they do like the the Christmas one with a uh, the Christmas story. But they used to do like 21 days of Bond, I think. And I think they I would do or 24 that. hours of Bond or something like that. And I re- I remember back in the you know cable. Uh, satellite dish days of my youth of you know sequestering myself on the couch usually during the holiday period sometimes I think it was Thanksgiving and or maybe Christmas and I would just you know go as far as I could you know, and you know in in these more modern times I've actually gone back and looked at some of the Bond films and you know it, a lot of them do hold up for if you keep it in context of the time of when it was filmed and sure. don't try to compare it to modern to modern lifestyles like you know Craig nowadays has done a fantastic job, you know, being a relevant modern day Bond with, you know, physically rugged more than anyone else uh, who's to had the role versus when you look at Connery and Moore, kind of lanky, kind of suave, kind of cheeky in their own rights. Um, but, you know, I, 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 I've, I have developed a more of a fond appreciation for a lot of the older films, but I also look forward to, you know, where the franchise is going to go in the future because I think there's a lot of potential there depending on, you know, ultimately where they go with it you know i've seen a lot of criticisms that you know in the last couple of craig films that they want to get away from the specter storyline the which you know specter did play a big role in a lot of the early bond films 
um, uh, directly and indirectly. And I think people want more of the standalone films, which I think The Living Daylights, another thing that for me, you know, and as I mentioned earlier, because of um, I was lucky that my mom and dad worked really hard and they wanted to take a lot of trips. So we we traveled a lot domestically and, and to the Virgin Islands and stuff. And I think that's kind of also too what 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 spoke to me was the the just the amount of movement that Bond did in this film and the way they portrayed it. I think, you know, they went from very standardized English locations to kind of very, you know, Eastern European, Eastern Bloc nations. They went to Afghanistan, to Northern Africa, to Tangier, Spain. So that the globe trotting aspect I think has always been what has tied me more so to the Bond series. Um, you know, obviously I love the action. I love the adventure, you know, storylines for the most part are, are pretty decent, but I think the fact that we have this globe trotting and I kind of hope they continue that with future Bond films with putting them in, in unique locations, you know, because a lot of the first couple of films, there was a lot of Caribbean stuff, you know, Dr. No was, um, um, in the Jamaica area and, you know, and I think, you know, there's been, you know, and if you look at other films, sometimes, um, they don't globetrot enough, which I think is kind of core to the bond. You got to go here now. You got to go here. So, right. Nice. All right. Yeah. No, I, I, um, well, I, I know I give you a hard time at the start, but I, overall I did enjoy it. And I just, um, it, it's, it is interesting and, and fun too, to come in with a different perspective because again, I hadn't, hadn't seen it. Uh, you've obviously seen it a number of times. I'm not particularly, uh, familiar with the, deep bond mythos i know a lot of the the basics and <laughs> is that the uh so so the soundtracks I, obviously i love uh movie soundtracks and i loved uh, initially this this came out as just a single cd uh wasn't expanded but as, as the case with a lot of bond films they have gone ahead and released deluxe editions with you know double discs um or adding in components bonus material that wasn't on the original release so this is the um, the deluxe edition that Ryko Disc, who had a hand in um, a few re-releases of Bond film soundtracks. So there was at one point I had four of the soundtracks. So I got rid of the original CD because it didn't have half as many tracks. This one has 21 tracks, and it's phenomenal. The outlet or the inlay booklet gives a lot of detail um, about the movie, about the soundtrack. You know, John Barry, this is one of his, in my opinion, one of his finest scores because it has like an 80s flair, but... AHA's component, you know, of the theme song is used in varying aspects throughout the film to kind of carry the the action forward. And so I, I'm now down to two copies. You know, I've I've sold a couple on eBay over time, but yeah, I was very happy to. I always have for things like this. I've got the the primary play copy, and then I have the backup copy in case the primary goes down. So. <laughs> That's that a music so, collector right there, man. Yeah, I was going to say, that is such a, a music geek thing. I love it. Uh, yeah, awesome. All right, well, uh, anything uh, anything else to add about The Living Daylights? I just, I'm glad we were able to discuss this, and I'm glad that, that your experience wasn't completely uh, <laughs> terrible, that you, you had, it wasn't a complete waste of your two hours and 11 minutes of lifetime, but... <laughs> Yeah, I, I, the reason, and plus, I, you know, going with that film, it, it was dead square in the middle of the 80s. Um, you know, you know th there could have been some other options. We could have gone with For Your Eyes Only was 81, Octopussy 83, A View to a Kill 85, and then License Kill. So all those films were viable candidates. This one was firmly in the middle of the 80s. It was still um, 
in the Cold War era, which again, a lot of films, like especially in the US at the time, especially in the 80s, were coming out with, you know, not necessarily being overtly prop, you know, propaganda laden. But, you know, if you look at a lot of the Chuck Norris films we could have, we may eventually get to that were in the 80s, there, you know, Invasion USA, a lot of those films, uh, there's definitely undertones Red. of East versus West. But this one, yeah. Red Dawn, that's one we it, should do it, at some point. Yeah, it, I agree. And, and this one definitely had, enough of elements to be an adventure film, kind of a, a consummate Bond film. And as you noted, you know, kind of a change in direction with some of the way that some of the characters are played. Bond was much a darker um, uh, protagonist. And, you know, Miriam Diabo's, you know, Kara Malovi, not your, uh, was your, not your typical Bond girl. And I think that was, I'm not, and I don't know why they changed that direction. Obviously we know in part that it was more true to the film, but you know, she wasn't the least bit sexualized. And I think they only made love once in the film. And that was literally three quarters of the way through the film. Whereas, you know, by that time, you know, Bond is already kind of uh, shared bedtime with probably three to four <laughs> women, um, yeah. half of which have already are been killed by the antagonist <laughs> of the film. So, yeah. you know, they, they classed it up in this film, which was good. And I think, uh, you know, it, it was uh, every character played a good part in the film from the devout villains to the, you know, um, to the good guys. And I think that, and I think that was, you know, carried out in good form and why it places such a warm, gives me the warm, the warm and fuzzies. And we talk <laughs> about the living daylights. <laughs> nice. Awesome. Well, I, I appreciate the pick and, uh, you know, that's, what's going to be fun about the podcast as we go forward. We're definitely, we're definitely going to do some, iconic films and then we're going to do some more personal films too so and you know um, the connections that we have to movies and and the nostalgia aspect of it or whatever it is is a is a huge component of of just like with music i think it's a huge component with film and the the feelings that it evokes and memories that it brings back so um yeah i'm always i'm always up for for that type of stuff so we'll uh we'll definitely dive deeper into some personal favorites uh down the road uh, at some point so but uh yeah so that was the living daylights hopefully you uh you watch the film i'll probably put something on facebook right before we release this just so if people do want to do want to give it a watch if if they've never seen it or if it's been a while to um go back over things with us and, and we would like to hear from people on Facebook. If you, if you want to talk about this episode or, or anything else you'd like to hear us do or, or talk about, or just, just want to chat since we're in such uh, isolated times and, and feeling that kind of connection with other people is important right now. So yeah, reach out. It would be, uh, it'd be cool to hear from everybody. So, but uh, I think we're, I think we're all done. Hey, eh, Brad. Good. We are good to go. Awesome. Well, I, I thank you as always for your time. Of course, of course, my brother, of course. And uh, everybody, you know, be smart, take care of each other, and uh, we'll uh, we'll all get through this. And if we can, if we can distract you for an hour or so, then that's awesome. Um, but uh, yeah, I think I think that's about it for this episode. We will come back next month. We got nowhere to be, so uh, we'll we'll definitely be back Except next month here with you. So that's what we want. <laughs> yeah. So we'll we'll come back in a month and. Um, and do this all over again with something else. Maybe we'll, we'll shift gears. I'm, I'm thinking maybe some music next month. I don't know. Oh, maybe, I'm maybe. thinking that movie sounds like a fantastic option. All right. Maybe we'll, we'll delve back into music next time. But until then, I'm going to sign off. My name is Ian Clark. For my buddy Brad Anderson, we want you to, uh, in these difficult times, don't be shaken, but be stirred. Pure energy.
You've been listening to Ego, the 80s Geek Out podcast with Ian Clark and Brad Anderson. We are a part of the Freebooters Network. Check out thefreebootersnetwork.com to listen to all the awesome podcasts on the network. We also invite you to check out our sponsor, Geek Nation Tours, at geeknationtours.com and interact with our Facebook page, ask questions, offer comments, and critiques. Thank you so much for listening. We'll see you next time.